Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Today, I want to continue in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through this incredible sermon preached from the mouth of Jesus. And and, uh, I don't know about you, but I just feel the more we are getting into this sermon, not only is God changing us, but I feel like we are coming closer to Jesus, who he was. And, and I, I, you sense it in worship when we say the name of Jesus, there's a, a depth there. And so today I want to uh, go a little bit deeper into God's word. We're going we're gonna to take a look at the subject of enemies. We're going to take a look at the subject of love, the subject of hatred, how they all combine. Today, my sermon title is Love thy enemies. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. Some of you are already getting nervous. Just off my sermon title, you're going to go to the bathroom real quick. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. The Bible says this, Jesus is speaking, and he he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." See, the whole subject of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole theme is the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is coming to explain to us, to reveal to us, to open up to us is how to live heaven's way, how to live on earth from eternity's perspective. And this is why he keeps referencing your father who is in heaven. And Jesus comes with this, with this, this critical directive to love your enemies. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, right now, we ask that you come and you speak and you open up our heart to be able to receive your word by the Spirit. Continue to grow us and mature us, God, that we may uh, look more like you. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said, amen, amen. See, loving your enemies makes you more like Jesus, which is important. That's the goal. Loving your enemies makes you more like Jesus, but it also makes you less like your enemies. Loving your enemies turns you into something that you won't end up hating. Hatred only turns you into something you'll end up hating. Loving your enemies is an opportunity for Jesus to form you, mature you, lead you, direct you, make you like him. And so, So today, I hope to guide our response, that we would have the right response to our enemies, those outside, those within, that we would have the right response to our enemies, that our response would be modeled and ordered by Jesus. Jesus begins this section of the Sermon on the Mount with this juxtaposition of these two phrases. He begins by saying, you have heard. You have heard. This is what Jesus, he, he puts forth. He, you, you've heard this said. You've seen this around you. This is what you've perceived by those that are amongst your peers. 
But then he used that fateful word, but. Most of the gospel hinges on this word, but. He says, but I say, but I say. You have heard, but I say. We, see, we, we, we understand in this moment Jesus is creating a line in the sand. We see in this moment Jesus is, is moving the old from the new. The earthly from the heavenly. The temporary from the eternal. And he addresses how we would live naturally. How we would see others live around us. You have heard it says. Well, 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 well what have we heard? We, we have heard that you should love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. That's logical. That, that's what the world would say. Who would say that? The world would say that. Your experiences. If you are, see, see this is all a question of whose words are going to have authority in your life. Whose words are going to have authority in your actions and reactions? Whose words are, are going to have authority over your mind, over eventually how you live? What you believe about this subject in these words is going to exemplify itself in how you live. And so Jesus is saying, you have heard to love your neighbors and hate those who hate you. And, and where would you where would you have heard that? Well, you've heard that in the world. You, maybe you've heard that from your family. Maybe you've experienced that in your life and, and your lived experience would say to hate those who hate you, oppose those who oppose you. Maybe you've heard that through media, through society, through culture. You've certainly heard that in secular humanism. You've certainly learned that from, from uh, uh, moral institutional philosophizing. It, it seems almost logical. You've heard it in dead religion. An eye for an eye. You, you've heard this before. But Jesus is saying all of that leads to the kingdom of man. Absent the spirit of God. He says, but I say. And what is that? That is the word. That is the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the word shown in humanity. Jesus comes to create a distinction right now. And he says, I understand that all these people are saying a bunch of stuff, but I am the one with authority and I am here to reveal a new way to live, a new way to act, and a new way to react. I know you have heard but that was B.C. We're moving into A.D. now. The cross is the thing that separates us from the old. The cross has a better word. The cross has the final word. He says, but I say. And what does that lead us to? The kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus' words, when followed, they bring you to the kingdom of heaven. Man's word, when followed, they lead you only into hell, only into flesh. But Jesus' words bring you towards the kingdom of heaven. So I want to begin the sermon here declaring we believe in the word of God. We place it in the place of preeminence in our life. We believe the word over what we've heard, over what we've seen. Hear me, over what you've lived. 
all of that is temporary and finite. All the words in all the world put together mean nothing compared to the overreaching, eternal, powerful words of God. We as a church believe in the word of God, the authority of scripture, and we place it in preeminence over all other words. Can you say amen? Amen. Over the words of your emotion, the words of your own mind, or the words of the world, they are nothing in comparison to the words of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, but I say, love your enemies. Here's the word. It's a difficult directive. Right away, it's like, can we just go back to what we've heard? Because I can make sense of that. They hate me. I hate them. We're good to go. But Jesus says, no, that's not how the kingdom works. I'm going to bring you to a higher level. Here's a greater principle. I'm calling you to love your enemies. This is your difficult but divine direction. And what is Jesus doing? He's trying to position us from the perspective of love instead of living positioned from a place of hate. he's, He's trying to give us a greater perspective, a greater motivation. He says, I'm calling you to love your enemies. What is this but the better way? Think about it. The reason Jesus is calling us to live from the perspective of love is because living from the place of hate ends up leaving us living in hell. What he's saying is, if you can love your enemies, you won't turn out like your enemies. Think about the story of Peter, the apostle Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were in the garden in the dark of night. And and, and the Bible tells us that here comes the Roman soldiers, and here comes the temple guard. And they're here to arrest Jesus, betrayed with a kiss from his own follower. And and this is the, the... the utmost injustice that could be happening to a perfect person. And here they come with swords and spears and fire and and terror and fear. Persecution, the definition of persecution. And they they come to arrest Jesus. And, And what's Peter's response? Well, his response is like our response would be. His response is over here in B.C. Peter pulls out a sword. And he sees the servant of the high priest coming for his high priest. And so Peter goes to cut the ear off of the other servant. Do you remember this story? What I love about this story is we know Peter was not aiming for the ear. He was coming straight down. He was trying to crack that guy's skull with a sword. This is violent. This is a reaction right now. This is for real. And you think, man, Peter has been in like all of Jesus' sermons. Still, he's ready with the sword. Wah! And he's coming servant against servant. That's what hatred does. Servant against servant. And he goes to cut off the man's head, ends up cutting off the man's ear. And what happens in that moment? Peter becomes just like his enemy. They came with swords, they came with spears, and the intention of violence, and Peter allowed his circumstances, Peter allowed those around them, Peter allowed his experiences to tell him who he is and what his reaction should be. Instead of living from the perspective of love, he allowed hate to take over. And see, that's the goal of hate. It is always there to consume and, and, and it's not that they weren't his enemies. Certainly they were. But Jesus is going to model how to deal with the enemies. Peter says, I'm going to deal with it my way, out of my flesh, and I'm here with the sword. And I tell you, I can't judge Peter. I agree with him. 
You don't? If Jesus was there and I had a sword, I'm with Peter. But Jesus says, no, there's a better way. There's a kingdom way. And in the midst of those that were persecuting him, betraying him, he picks up this man's ear. The man that came to kill Jesus, Jesus heals. Jesus heals. And, and, and then after he heals him, he allows him to arrest him. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, he says this phrase, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What is he saying to Peter? He's saying, if you're going to live this way, you're going to die this way. If you're going to act this way, you're going to be caught up in the actions, in the reactions of this way. Jesus is saying there is a better way than responding to hatred with hatred. He's saying in that moment, Peter, do not be, allow hatred to form you. Don't become the very thing that you hate. Hear me. If you counter injustice with more injustice, all that makes you is someone who's unjust. Martin Luther King puts it this way. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And, 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 so, and so my point today, my, my, my challenge to you today is, is what will your response be born out of? A chosen position of love or the flesh's reaction of hatred. I pray that you position yourself, choosing in your mind and your heart, choosing the position of love over hate. Here's why. You cannot be purposeful with hatred. You cannot be purposeful, technical with hatred. It's like, it's like, it's like a spark that ends up creating a wildfire. It gets out of control immediately. See, the nature of hatred is to consume, and it consumes the one it sparked within. It, you can't be purposeful with it. You, you can't say, I will hate my father, but I won't hate my husband. I'll hate my mother, but I'll never hate my children. I'll, I'll hate myself, but I'll never hate others. I'll hate my nation, but I'll never hate people. I'll hate my boss, but I won't hate my job. No, the nature of hate is that it takes over. And if you allow it in one area of your life, it will always eventually seep into all areas of your life. It will bring with it its best friends, bitterness, vengeance, anger, violence, self-righteousness. It opens the door to a bunch of demons that you can't handle. And they come and they make home in your heart. It's very difficult to hate in moderation. Just a little teaspoon of hate. Oh, oh. delightful. Him? Oh. Ah. <laughs> Let me just stir in a little bit of bitterness too. Oh. It's poison. It's poison. And it will begin to suck your bones dry. Think of the story of Pandora's box. When she opened that box, what flew out, she no longer had control. Vileness and, and all manner of evil opened that box, and once it comes out, it's not going back in. Hear me, the goal of your enemy is to get you to look like him, to live like him, to react like him. And so he'll put you in situations to stir up the nature in you that is unlike God but is like him. Let me tell you, if you are fighting Satan on his turf, even if you are winning, you're still living in hell. 
What Jesus is saying is, I'm, come, I'm coming here to reframe this conversation. I'm going to teach you a better way. Love your enemies so that you do not become like your enemies. It's God's love that is rescuing us with this principle. Don't even give hatred a foothold in your life, especially where you would deem it appropriate to, that it should get a foothold. Don't give it a foothold even if it's justified. You need to be able to say to your enemy, you may be my enemy, but I refuse to hate you. You may be my enemy, but I, refu- I may disagree with you, but I won't hate you. I may oppose you, but I won't do it out of hatred. Listen, you can draw lines. Love draws lines. Love sets boundaries. Love is just not um, anything and everywhere. Love is a definitive thing. It, It draws lines. It sets boundaries. I'm not saying for you not to have enemies. I'm saying for you to act like Jesus towards your enemies. Because Jesus had a lot of enemies. In fact, no one in all of history might have had more enemies than Jesus. The perfect picture of love everybody hates. And yet Jesus says, just because you hate me doesn't mean I'm going to become like you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen? So what does love look like? Love your enemies? What does love look like? I would define it as this. Love is Jesus exemplified. We, we don't need, we don't need uh, to hold love as a theoretical construct. We know what love looks like in the flesh. We know what love talks like. We know what love acts like. It looks and acts and talks like Jesus. The Bible says God is love, and Jesus is God. Jesus is the personification of love. If you want to know what love looks like, love looks like God. Love looks like Jesus. And so what you and I can do, in trying to define our definition of love is we can test it up against Jesus. When you do something or say something, you could say, would Jesus do that? It's, it's always no. It's all, it's, let me just give you the answer. No, it's, he wouldn't. But the, the goal is not that you condemn you. The goal is that you would move just a little bit closer to him. Would Jesus respond like that? He wouldn't. All right, I'm going to check that response. Would Jesus allow that spirit in? Would he let those words out? Would he allow this action, this step to be taken? If not, then I'm not going to take it because I want to end up looking like Jesus. Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. Well, how do I do that? I hold him as the model. Jesus is the picture of love. John says this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is love. There's a great story in the novel Les Miserables, written by Victor Hugo, where it talks about the criminal Jean Valjean who served 19 years in a French prison for stealing a loaf of bread. When he was finally let out on parole, Jean Valjean went through the countryside but was unable to find anyone who would employ him because of his past. He ended up a wanderer and absolutely broken, penniless, and and ended up in the front steps of a church. The bishop of that church welcomed him in. He gave gave him hot food to eat and a bed to sleep on and In the middle of the night, Valjean woke up, took his bag, and stole the only thing of value that that church had, its silverware. 
took off in the middle of the night down the road. Well, eventually, the, the, the French officers caught up with him, and they saw what his bag was filled with silverware, and put two and two together, brought him back to the bishop's feet, threw him down, and said, we have caught the criminal. We caught the one that stole from you. And here the bishop had Valjean's life in his hands. Whatever he decided was going to decide his fate. He could put him back into slavery or he could choose a better way. In that moment, the bishop said to Valjean, you, not, you left too early. That not, not only did I give you the silverware, you forgot. I gave you the most valuable of all the things, the two candlesticks here. These, these items would radically change someone's life. Life. They would, go, they would go from having nothing to being very wealthy in a moment. And here the bishop gave all that he had to Valjean, and he released him from the grasp of the officers, not to go back into prison, but to walk into freedom, walk into freedom a new man. And he says in that moment, I've done this great act of grace towards you. I have redeemed your soul for God. And through the love, the sacrificial love of that bishop, Valjean became a new man rescued many, provided for many, all because this bishop chose in the moment to not hate his enemy, to not repay injury with, with personal vengeance. But he chose in that moment mercy, the difficult path of love. And that sacrificial act of grace is what Jesus did. We're the criminals. We're the ones that owe God our life. We deserve death. We deserve slavery. Yet Jesus chose to not only give us mercy, which means not giving us what we deserve. He also gives us grace. He hands the candlesticks to us saying, you deserve death, but here is life and life more abundantly. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. But he also gives us this directive. Now live how I have lived. Do unto others what I have done unto you. Love your enemies. And when we do that, we begin to look like God. That bishop is a picture of God because he acts like God. The Bible says this in 1 Peter, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers I, I want to put it this way. Love leaves room. Love leaves room. Love leaves room for change. Hatred leaves no room. It has, it has purity tests that no one can get through. It has a gate that's always locked, a door that's always shut. But love leaves room for humans to change. Love leaves room for grace and for mercy. Love leaves room for repentance. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be reconciliation. If someone did you wrong, that doesn't mean you're besties after that. But if there is repentance, love accepts that repentance. Love leaves room for human frailties and flaws. In marriage, this is so important that you would leave room for the humanity of the other person. If not, if you're always bitter and if you're always the judge and if you're always keeping score, pretty soon there's only one direction this thing is going to go. 
Because love is the only thing that can create enough space for two individuals, broken, hurting individuals, to cohabitate together. Jesus sets the model for us to leave room for maturity. I want you to know, I believe the church is really the only place left on earth that still believes this and still will practice love. In society right now, we are fulfilling what the Bible says where the love of many will grow cold. There's tribalism. There's otherism. There's people that believe differently or voted differently or look differently or act differently or, or, or post differently or use different words. And, and instead of us saying, I don't agree with you, but I love you, instead there's just anger, vileness, rage, and hate and stoked by people who are going to make money off of our division. And Jesus is over here saying, I've got a better way. Don't let your love grow cold towards others, even if you disagree. Even if you should disagree, that's okay. But we're not going to become tribal, vengeful, angry. I pray the church, is, I pray the church has got a big room. I pray the church has got a big room. Amen? I just want you to know this sets us apart from people. And you might be in this place, and there might be very good reason for you to have hatred. Maybe you face betrayal, like Jesus. Maybe you've gone through divorce. Someone cheated on you. Maybe, maybe words were spoken over you that to this day, when you think of them, that sting is still there, and it's still deep. I'm not saying that those things were not wrong, but I am saying that they should not have the definitive place in your life. And when you choose to love those that did you wrong, you release them and you release yourself. You release yourself. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying love your enemies, not because they're going to change, but because you will change. Amen? And then Jesus doubles, as if this wasn't hard enough, then Jesus doubles down on it. And not only do I want you to love your enemy, theoretically, conceptually, sounds good. He says, I want you to pray for those that persecute you. I want you to pray for those that actively oppose you, that, that, that speak all manner of evil against you, that, 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 that cut against everything you believe and what you stand for. I want you to pray for those that persecute you. Hear me. What Jesus is trying to, to engineer, he's trying to direct our response. How we respond shows who we serve. And so Jesus is saying, if you serve me, I want you to live like me. I want you to respond like me. Prayer for your persecutors, hear me, produces Christ in you. Even if they don't change, it produces Christ in you. You know what prayer does? It purifies your own heart. And you, can, you know you have really forgiven when you can pray a prayer of blessing over someone. I've seen it in my life where I, I've forgiven up here, but not here yet. But you know you've forgiven here when you say, you know what? I don't wish them harm. I don't wish them harm. I, I, I hope they do change. I don't want them to get what they deserve. Even though I do want, I don't want. I sort of do, but I don't. Remember when Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew when he started prophesying and preaching, they were going to change, and Jonah didn't want that. Jonah said, like, let them change after the fire comes down. Whoever's left, gather them up. <laughs> Jonah's like a legit prophet. Chosen by God. And he's like sitting for a good view. All right, let's get this party going. 
fire. That's us. That's us. But God says, I got a better way, though. I got a better way, and it's a better way for you. Remember when Jonah went through depression because they didn't get what they deserved? God says, I'm going to take care of them, but you shouldn't have to live depressed. You shouldn't have to live angry. You shouldn't have to live as the final authority over everyone that's hurt you. Give it to God and get set free. Amen? I've seen this in my own life. When I was younger, driving with my dad to church, we would always pass by a certain church. And and in this church was a pastor that disliked my dad, publicly disparaged my dad. And, uh, And I knew it as a young child. But every time we passed this church, my dad would pray for that pastor. And he'd pray for the church. Pray blessings over the church. And I would hear it. In the, in the back, and he would do it silently, not in a public display, that one day this will make a great illustration in Jordan's sermon. <laughs> you hearing me? He would just pray out of the overflow of his heart, but I heard. You know, I was in the back praying a different prayer. God, cut their mic off in the middle of the sermon. Cut it off, God. God, mess up everyone's GPS. Let them come to our church, God. It's <laughs> counteracting the prayers in the back. But, you know, seeing that example, I also saw the outcome of those prayers. I saw that God could trust this church and him as a pastor with blessing because he chose the path of love instead of the path of vengeance. Instead of the path of hatred, he prayed for his persecutors. And what did we receive? Blessings. Blessings. God says, I've got a better way. Here's the right perspective. If I can't change them, I can give it to God and let him change me. Amen? Jesus ends this section of the sermon by saying, You, therefore, I'm speaking to you, must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to come near me. Jesus knows we're not going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean he's not going to call us there. Perfection is the pursuit. Sin is missing the mark. Grace covers a multitude of sins. And God says, I'm just going to keep growing you. I'm going to keep moving you. Ten years from now, you're going to be closer to perfection than you were. Thirty years from now, you're going to be closer to perfection And by perfection, I mean Jesus. That's who we're called to get close to again. Knowing that we'll never attain perfection, but there's grace for our gaps. Grace for the places where we fall short. God comes in and he fills in and he covers and he loves, but he still forms us and he still matures us. I'm grateful that God does both at the same time. He covers and he still calls. I was speaking to an 89-year-old pastor this weekend, and he had been in the ministry his entire life. And he was telling me about this small group that he just started with men, his crew. At 89, he's still ministering. And he said, I I felt like I was supposed to, to do a class, a course on spiritual formations, how to be formed in your spirit. And he says, as I'm writing it, he said, I felt God convict me and tell me that you're not 
you're not done being formed by me either yet. He said, don't walk in there as the expert. I still got things I'm working on in you. Then this pastor started going through his life and all of the different things that God had worked on him and is still working on him from when he was 20 years old to when he's 89 years old. And it was such a revelation to see that at no matter what age you're at, God will still form you, still want to form you, still perfect you. That Why? So that you might look like God's son, that you might look like Jesus. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father, daughters of your father who is in heaven. I pray that we as a church, we look like Jesus more and more. We act like Jesus more and more. That we feel the freedom of Jesus more and more. And I believe that all flows from the commitment to live by Jesus' principles. So today, we choose right now to deny the path of hatred, the easy path of vengeance, and we choose the difficult path of love. And I pray that love gets on you and is in you and all around you. I pray it flows through you. And might you live that life? Because living the life of hatred is too difficult. Might you live the life of love? Right now, maybe there's someone that is in your mind as I'm speaking that you say, I could never, I could never forgive him. I could never let it go. I hate him too much. I believe right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can let that person go. Give it to God. You can let those words go. Give it to God. Even what they did to you, you can let it go. Give it to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He is a just God. But I believe for you, there can be forgiveness and healing. I believe love can take its place. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.